Hi, everybody. Together with Apple Books, welcome again to the Oprah's Book Club podcast in our series on Isabel Wilkerson's magnificent book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. Pillar four is titled Purity Versus Pollution. And I think Pillar four, who shook many readers to their core. I read that on many posts on the Oprah's Book Club Instagram page. Isabel, you explain in the book that the dominant cast has an obsession with purity and live in fear of what they believe is pollution from the lower caste. Can you speak about that for a moment? Yes, historically, in the early creation of a caste system, one of the abiding features of it is the maintenance of the purity of those who are in the dominant caste and being protected from the potential pollution that could come from exposure to those assigned to the subordinated caste. And the lengths to which people will go in any of these caste systems that I've looked at go to such extremes as to, in the Indian case, the subordinated caste was to remain as many as 96 paces away from those in the dominant caste, that the very shadow of the people who were deemed subordinate could pollute those who were deemed as dominant in the caste system. And that even in our own country, that this went to such extremes as, for example, in courtrooms throughout the South, into the 1960s and 70s, in fact, there was a separate Bible, there was a black Bible and an altogether separate white Bible to swear to tell the truth on in court. The very word of God was segregated in the Jim Crow South into mm. the lifespan of some people who are alive today. This was one of the prevailing, most readily enforced aspects of maintaining a caste system, to keep the groups apart and separate for the protection of the purity of one against the pollution of the other. Melba, our Little Rock Nine, I see you're nodding your head there when she was saying the Bibles. You've seen that happen. There was a black Bible and a white Bible. No doubt that the cast, the upper cast holding the cards, went to every extent to make sure that in the minutest ways, we knew that we weren't good enough, that we didn't measure up and we shouldn't take them. For example, if you went grocery shopping, I remember my grandmother, come on, Andy, Andy, you're not touching that baking powder. She was reaching for, can I'm gonna forget, a can of Calumet baking powder. And I was four, and it was my experience in the grocery store that first taught me that, wait a minute, we're not equal. We're not good enough. These black people cannot take care of me. I'm in a lot of danger. If my grandmother was in line getting groceries and I was in line with her, I remember I'd have my dolly with me and I went to go home. I wanted to get that done and get out of there. Well, guess what? If a white person came near to wanting to be in that line, she'd have to step out of line. If she was getting meat from behind the grocery counter and a white person came up, she'd have to step way to the right. I spent hours polishing my saddle shoes. I'd walk down the street. If a white person comes towards you, you better step off really quickly into the mud and stand way, way back. So that it's interesting that I think we perpetuate our own stability of these caste systems. Because see, by the time I was three and four, my people were already memorizing for me. They were making me memorize what I could and could not do. As I explained, by the time I was five years of age, I watched the Klan come into a church on a Friday night during Bible period and hang a man from the rafters. You must understand that controlled 
that was the ultimate control of caste systems was fear. From the moment I was born, the thing I remember most in my life is fear. I have always, every minute of every day, been frightened. And later on as a teenager, when I was chosen by the NAACP and first volunteered to go to Central High School, and that whole act of going to that school required the 101st Airborne Division. By then, I'd already stood in line enormous number of times waiting to be hanged. I'd seen hangings. I'd heard about them. The Klan had written in my neighborhood. I'd seen black men dragged on the ground on a Friday night by a horse. But by this time, I believed the horrors of it. And it is that belief that keeps you in line. It's that belief that keeps everybody in line. And that's the most frightening part of this whole system. But what for me I'm so grateful to you about is that you got it all down. I've written books and I've gotten parts of it. And one of the most interesting paragraphs that all of the critics picked is this. Black folks aren't born knowing they're second-class citizens. Nobody leans over the crib and says, hey, Melba, you're not going to vote. You're not good enough. But guess what? Teaspoon by teaspoon, day by day, moment by moment, you learn that through what you can and cannot do to where you can and cannot go. Couldn't ride the bus in the front. Got to pay your money in the front and run, run, trot, trot to the back and get on while the bus is moving. And sometimes that bus driver, I, I read that sometimes that bus driver would leave you even though you paid the money. Thank you very much. And as you're trying <laughs> to step up the steps, I remember as a little girl, those, those back steps, think about it, are steeper and you'd almost fall. My grandma would grab my hand and drag me up. Now, as a few years passed, I could go in the front, and I thought, happy days, people. Uh, and I sat down on the front seat and almost got slapped. But what you must understand is the minute detail that mm -hmm. the cast took, the lengths to which they go, to ensure that each and every one of we people living under Jim Crow, we knew what was expected of us. And our families lectured us daily. I got daily lectures about what you can and you cannot do. What your place was. This has been one of my topics for my life. I don't think you ever, ever, although I may have two doctorates, been a professor for 14 years, read many books, been an NBC News reporter, you don't ever, I don't ever, ever, ever wake up in the morning, go out the front door, go somewhere to speak, get on a plane, so I could match you 10 for 10 on all those incidents on planes, right? But nothing ever happens to me that in the back of my mind, that list of you don't matters are not back there. Mm. They just never, ever, every single day of my life. What am I gonna have to do today to measure up? I think when you're little and you live under Jim Crow, your whole life is. My mission is to get from the white man what is mine, what I need and what I want. My question is, shall I crawl up? Should I stand up and demand? How can I get what I want and live through it? Wow. So it's like a permanent trauma. You're talking about a permanent trauma if that is ingrained in your head from, 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 from an early age. I understand that. I understand that. Yeah. Speaking of trauma, I, I wondered after I read this story on page 121, you tell one of the most heartbreaking stories in the entire book. And I know it was hard for a lot of people to read. It's about a young African-American boy named Al Bright. You would know that this is true, Melba, because you've lived through this yourself. The story of Al Bright, who was nine years old 
1951. When I finished reading that story, I tried to Google him because I wanted to speak to him immediately to see how this, this, this incident that you're going to tell us about had impacted his life and found that he had passed away in October of 2019. So otherwise, he would be on this screen with us today. I would hope that he could be on the screen today. But tell us the Albright story. The Albright story is one of the most heartbreaking ones that I came across, and it's so hard to speak about. It is just so hard to speak about. I just, I just, you know, I, I just get so emotional just even thinking about it. I feel such a connection to his pain. It was 1951, Youngstown, Ohio, and his Little League team had just won the championship. A big achievement, time for celebration. And he was the only black kid on the Little League team, right? He was the only, only black, black kid, on, kid the on, the, on, the, on the Little League team. And the coaches and uh, parents and, and the team went to celebrate at a pool party. They went to a municipal pool in order to celebrate. Once they got to the pool, the officials at the pool and the lifeguard at the pool let everyone in except for Al Bright. And he was forced to sit outside of the pool area outside on the other side of a fence. They had to get a blanket for him to sit, and he had to watch his teammates frolic and play and splash in the pool while he was forced to sit outside and watch. They brought him food on occasion. To me, as I'm, as I'm reading and absorbing this, I'm feeling, even as I speak about it, the sense of humiliation uh, mm -hmm. that he had to have suffered, not being able to do anything about it, and stuck there. At a certain point, the coaches, the white coaches, to their credit, one might say, uh, went to the lifeguard to say, look, there's got to be something that we can do. There's got to be something we can do. He's part of this team. We're celebrating. Can't we do something for him to be able to get in the pool and, and experience this? And the lifeguard said that in order for that to happen, all of the people in the pool, all the white people in the pool, these are the teammates, coaches, parents and even other people in the public, all the white people, were, were forced to get out of the pool and out of the pool area. And then and only then was he brought in to the pool. You're reading it and you're picturing that little boy on the other side of the fence, yes. looking at all of his friends and, yeah. you know, people coming out, bringing him something and him looking through the fence at them. And finally, when he's brought inside, the lifeguard put Al in a raft and pulled him around the pool and kept repeatedly saying to him, don't put your hands in the water. Don't put your hands in the water. That's after the pool has been emptied by everybody else. You can tell the end. You can tell the end. I mean, this story, he, the, I'm, I'm... The thing, the thing about it is, about as, story. As, he was, as he was taken around for a single turn in the pool, he was told throughout the whole time, Whatever you do, do not touch the water. Don't let any part of your body get into the water. Then when he got out of the pool, uh, all these people are watching this whole time. Everyone's watching him as he goes mm -hmm. around. And he's so broken from that experience that they offer to take him home. And he is so devastated by that that he ends up just saying, no, he just will walk home. He made the whole long walk home with the trophy that he had had such a big part in winning. 
and yeah. never, ever recovered from that. That's why I wanted to speak to him after reading. I mean, I finished that, and then I thought, let me find out if he's still alive. And I literally was thinking, okay, if that was ball game was then, it was 1951, then he would be nine or 10 years old. One of our readers, Mel, is an author also and former book reviewer for the New York Times. He was also Al Bright's oldest friend. And Al passed away just last year. Welcome, Mel. Hi. How you doing, Oprah? You and Al were friends all the way back in 1951 when this incident at the pool happened. Did he ever tell you this story? How did you know about this story? Well, Al and I were very close friends. Um, I knew him since I was nine years old. And I played in Little League also. So, yes, he told me about the story. We talked about it intensively. I thought what I would do is just read a bit from the book, Dancing with Strangers. What I wrote was, I'm not sure what Al was thinking during that long trip back home. He didn't say anything about it for months, not to me or anyone else. He held it in as if refusal to disclose would somehow diminish the impact, postpone the loss of faith and a vision we shared. Inevitably, however, the incident had a devastating effect on him, undermining and for a time eroding his belief or at least trust that achievement, correct behavior, and adherence to the rules might be fairly rewarded, judged solely on the basis of individual merit. I had had no such sudden revelation during adolescence. Even after Al shared the experience with me, I was reluctant to completely abandon my belief that no adult could be dull-witted enough to judge people solely on the basis of appearance or a heredity over which they all those making the judgment had any control. Al had experienced a sudden form of shock treatment. But for me, the grim revelation eased up like a slick pocket in a crowd of unsuspecting revelers. That's the way I wrote about it at that time. Al, it obviously it affected him deeply. He didn't talk to me about it for, as I said, for months. But later, when this book came out and we had a book party, Al appeared there and told the story. So we're talking about, uh, what, 40-some years 40 later. 40-some years, yeah. When he told his story, he actually cried telling the story because the hurt was still there. But the thing about Al and I is that uh, we both realized something about the racism in Youngstown. It was not as overt as what's been described by Melville. It was much more subtle. There were no signs saying, don't eat here, no signs saying, be careful of where you go. Instead, what happened was that you knew it. You were told it by your parents. You understood it. It was there at all times. You realized what was going on. Al and I had a shared belief that the way that you get out of the role that was specified for you was to play the game, was to try to undermine it. You resisted, and you couldn't resist it overtly, directly. You couldn't be aggressive about it because that would have been suicidal. But you did it in a different way. You tried to deal with it by undermining it, ridiculing it in certain ways. But it was a difficult time, and certainly the roles were there. They were enforced, and certainly that desire for purity, that desire to keep everything apart was a part of our daily lives. I'm sure young boys would have a hard time talking about the impact that that moment would have had. How, how do you even express the pain and the trauma, the embarrassment, the humiliation, you know, as a young boy? You wouldn't even have the ability to do that. Well, actually, by the time we were in our teens, we were talking about those things. That's one of the reasons we were able to uh, transcend that situation and get out of there and not accept the roles that had been designated for us. So we did talk about it. And Al talked about it often. As I said, it was a, a way of dealing with it that 
you kept a faith that you could escape it, that you could transcend it, that those roles were not really defining of who you were, and that you had to, at all times, maintain an, an image of who you were, to right. deal with that image, to uh, foster that image, and try to, at all times, see a better future. We maintained our friendship over the years. It was always the closest. We always talked about this. We always felt uh, a sense of um, kinship about this because I played Little League Baseball also. That's why we were, we were very good friends. It was a time of despair for him, of hurt for him, and he did try to hide it, and he was wounded by it. But he did not let it destroy his future. He was able to overcome it. And I think that's what we all have to do. Yeah. We all have to overcome whatever these roles are. That's the problem that we have to deal with. I see that, Mel. I see that j j just just surviving and thriving and being able to go on and teach and live and have a successful life means you resisted. Yeah, you had to do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Play the game, as you said. Play the game. A lot of questions and thoughts here. I'll begin with you, Sherry, then Shanna, then... Ke okay, everybody get your thoughts in. Sherry, what do you want to say? Isabel, I live about 10 miles from where Trayvon Martin was murdered, and that started causing a lot of upstirring in this area. And in the past couple years, like Ben, I've been having some stuff of myself just kind of being to the forefront. And since I started using my voice a little bit more for my friends, I've been receiving a little bit, you know, more information from people. So just down the street, again, this happened last week. The girls got off the bus from school. We went back to school. And this is in a pretty, you know, whatever you want to call it, predominant neighborhood. And she was called the N-word amongst all of her friends. And then... I had another story reach out to me where uh, it's an interracial couple and the boys were playing lacrosse and the team was winning and the other team started slewing the inward at them. I drove to Live Oak, Florida just recently and all I could think about was this story. My question for you, because I've gotten this one like a lot, privately messaged to me from just people from everywhere is one, let's move past this as a nation, dwelling on it is not good for our youth. Mm -hmm. And I, mean, I was so mad when I got that. Um, like, I've been trying not to cry this whole time. So, but how do you respond to that? Because it's not like we're dwelling on it. We're just saying, did you know this happened? That's such an important question. And I usually answer with some type of metaphor, so forgive me for that. When people go in for, uh, to see the doctor or for therapy, what is it that you are doing? What is it that you're doing? You're talking about the past in order to reconcile the past so you can understand the present and move to a better future. That is literally what happens. And when you are looking at science and you're doing a science experiment, you look to see what has been done before and then you try to figure out what can we do to make this better. You cannot make anything better by ignoring it. You can never solve anything by pretending it doesn't exist. You can never address something if it doesn't have a name and it doesn't have a, a description. In other words, by not naming it as a way of guaranteeing that it won't get solved. To me, that sounds as if people maybe don't want to solve it because if you don't address something, it won't get solved. I also look at it in terms of, as I said, when you go to the doctor and the doctor will say, 
what is it that has happened in your family? I cannot even begin to diagnose you until I know what has happened before. If you're not aware of what's happened before, how in the world can you find out what is going on with the body? When you have had an x-ray taken, why would you have the x-ray if you're not going to look at it? I describe our country as an old house, and if you don't go into the basement after a rain, it does not mean that you won't deal with it. You will not have to deal with it if you don't go and look at it. Not looking at it does not mean that whatever is going on is not happening. It just means you don't know. And how do you resolve something if you don't know? How can you have a strong house, a strong building, a strong family, a strong body if you do not address and, and confront the things that could possibly be at issue with it. And so I think that to me, not talking about it is what is leading to so much of the tension and misunderstanding. Not knowing our history is what is leading to our having multiple visions about even what our country's been through. Most people don't know the true history of our country. There's not even agreement on, say, what, what was the cause of the Civil War. I mean, that, that, that is not even agreed. One thing I want to say is that, you know, I spent some time looking at Germany in the process of working on this book to understand how are they reconciled the history from World War II. And it turns out that they have a massive, massive memorial in the center of Berlin, prime real estate right in the middle of it, the size of multiple football fields. It's basically concrete blocks, blocks that are to represent the people who perished during the Holocaust. And in doing so, the only reason I mention that is because it turns out that there is no marker there's no description about what it is. There's nothing that says this is the history of what happened. Everyone knows what it's for, but there's no history attached. And that is because it's taught in the schools the full total history of what happened. Everyone is exposed to what the true and full history was. And everyone is forced in that way to be on the same page just to say this is what happened. Can we agree, in our case, on what the Civil War was about? Can we agree, do we really know what enslavement was in our country? Do we really know that it went on for 246 years? That it involved 12 generations? How many greats do you have to add to the word grandparent to begin to imagine how long enslavement lasted in our country? When you add to that another 100 years of, of Jim Crow caste system, which didn't affect just black people. It affected everyone because everyone had a place in that caste system. Everyone had a role to play. So we are all affected by it. So the idea of this history helps us to understand why we are expected to act the ways that we do, the script that runs through all of our heads about who's supposed to be where, who's, who's expected to be doing this kind of job, who we would be surprised to see in that role. And it explains so much. And without that, one last metaphor that I have to give you is that without that, it's as if we're all at a movie. And we are in the middle of the movie. We walked into the theater in the middle of the movie. And we didn't catch the first half. And so we have no idea what we're really looking at. We're looking at what's happening. This person is chasing this other person through a parking lot or whatever it is that they're doing. And we don't know why, who is this, who's a good person, who's bad, what is going on. And we don't know because we didn't catch the first half. So this is an idea of saying, let's catch the first half of what happened in the movie that we're now living. And let's get on the same page about what exactly happened so that we can then understand the present and move to a stronger future. That's why I think it's important to know. You are good. You got a metaphor stash.
you got a metaphor stash, girl. <laughs> Just you got a metaphor, whatever's the issue, she got a metaphor for it. You got a little metaphor exactly. stash over here. Yes, yes, yes. I want to talk to Isabel about one of the connections made in the book that's getting a lot of heated conversation, the revelation that the Nazis studied the American caste system. And even more shocking that the Nazis thought that our American system in some respects went too far. Can you give us an overview of the United States influencing the Nazi regime? Well, I'm, I'm gonna preface it by saying that my goal in this was to see how they had atoned for what had happened in the past. Um, and that led me to these discoveries that I never would have imagined. One of them is that in the years leading up to the formation of the Third Reich, German eugenicists were in constant, continual contact with and dialogue with American eugenicists as they were formulating and, and refining and honing their idea of who was pure and who was not, which groups were superior and which were beneath them. Then it turned out that American eugenicists were writing books that became bestsellers in Germany. And in fact, one of them was described by Hitler as his Bible. This is a book written by an American eugenicist. And of course, the Nazis needed no one to teach them how to hate that they knew they were doing that before. And they didn't need anyone to teach them that. But what they did was they sent researchers to the United States to study how America had subjugated its lowest caste people, its subordinate caste people, African Americans. Americans. They came to study the anti-miscegenation laws, in other words, the laws that it kept people from being able to marry across racial lines. Uh, they studied the ways that the United States had uh, separated African Americans in other ways. They studied the ways that Americans defined who was black, who was white, and who was other, uh, whatever other group that might have been, and how they delineated who, who could be what and who could come into the country. So they studied all of those things, and they actually debated these laws in, that were in the United States. They studied these laws and debated them as they were creating what would ultimately become the Nuremberg Laws. There was an aspect of American law that they did not understand. It's sh shocking to imagine, but they did not understand, nor did they agree with what in the United States is called the one-drop rule. The one-drop rule was one that was adopted by many states, particularly in the American South, in which to be identified and categorized as black, all you needed was one drop of black blood. So you could look like what we consider a white person. You could have predominantly white ancestry. But if it was found that you had one drop of African blood or black blood, whatever that is, actually, then you would be qualified and defined as black. And that was something that the Nazis chose not to adopt. Heather is one of our readers, and she's a pediatrician from Pennsylvania. And you were raised in the Jewish faith. And you were one of those people who was shocked when you read about the connection between the Nazis and the American caste system. Absolutely. As a Jewish woman, as a doctor, as a human being, um, this book totally spoke to my heart, to my mind. I'm always trying to educate myself about my history, about our country's history, helping my patients. And this book was such an education for me. I was immediately horrified by the connection. I grew up being told never to forget our past and never to forget the atrocities that happened in Germany and that you don't repeat history, but you are doomed to fail if you don't know the history. So how can our generations, our generations moving forward um, do this without learning. I knew about the dark time in Germany. I was never taught that it happened here first. 
I was never taught that the Nazis actually templated many of their policies on the United States. So I find it horrifying, interesting to think about it that way, to think about it as more than anti-Semitism over there, but anti-casteism. Had I been born in the 1930s in Germany, I would have been the subordinate caste. I would have had a very different life than being born here in the 1970s in the United States as a white woman. And to think about that just based on my bloodline. And going back to Isabel, when you said about the Germans acknowledging their past, they've acknowledged it. They've torn down the monuments. They learn this history so they don't repeat it. We don't do that in the United States. We can never move forward if we don't. And that's why I'm reading these books. I am talking to my friends. I'm trying to be a presence for education and for moving forward. Also to this point, right, I have a sort of a question and a comment. As a healthcare provider, I've been trained to help all people. I'm not supposed to base it on what you look like on your socioeconomic status. As a matter of fact, most of our good training programs are in inner cities. So I'm actually appalled when I read this book and I think about it, that caste actually plays such a role in healthcare. I'm actually, I'm thinking about the experiments that were done on our black people in the early Americas. Um, I have a little trouble with the disconnect. I don't understand how these doctors and these people did these experiments and tried to learn from what they thought was a lesser caste and how they then thought they were going to apply it to themselves. How does that make sense? How did they reconcile that? Well, I would have to go back to one of the pillars, which the foundational one of dehumanization. And once anyone has been inculcated in and absorb the messaging, the programming that this entire group is dehumanized, then that's when the atrocities become you know, not only um, allowable, but in fact, in their view, necessary in order to further the goals of the larger society. I would also remind everyone that uh, we are all human and that this programming can sometimes override training even. We, you know, there are many, many studies that, that indicate that uh, many medical students, despite the training and, and good intentions, might still hold some unconscious biases that the numbers are so surprising when there are modern day medical students who actually believe that uh, black people experiencing less pain or have a higher pain threshold than other people. That shows you when we're always talking about the connection between the history and the current day. That is an example of how these assumptions of dehumanization and inferiority have carried forth to the current day without anyone teaching anyone. I would not suggest in any way that this is part of the curriculum of what people are learning in medical school. It goes beyond that. It's part of the society at large. And mm -hmm. all of us are part of the society and we all are thus susceptible to the programming. And it shows up in these studies that, that become kind of hard to dismiss, unfortunately. In the book, as Heather was mentioning, you contrast modern Germany's handling of remembering the Holocaust with the way American southern states memorialize the Civil War. Explain the difference. I mean, we're in a battle now in the country for people who don't understand why monuments to the Civil War would be offensive to African-American people and also should be offensive to a lot of people in this country. Well, it turns out that after the 12 years of the horror of the Third Reich, 
there are now no monuments whatsoever to any of them. There is nothing named after them, any of the leaders of the, of the Nazis. Many of the installations that they had have now been converted into places of education, museums that allow people to go and to learn about how this occurred so this would never happen again. There are many, many museums. The location where the final solution was hammered out and adopted, this was the final solution of the mass murder of Jewish people in Europe. That's now a monument to understanding what happened. That is now a museum of learning so people can see the horror of what happened. So they have converted places of horror into places of education so that everyone knows and everyone can learn and everyone can be on the same page about what happened. In addition, there are these beautiful, I've seen them as beautiful monuments to the people, memorials to the people who perished in the Holocaust. They're called stumbling stones. And these are small markers that are placed in front of the last known residents of people who were killed in the, in the Holocaust. And they are placed all over the cities in Europe and they force you to look down, uh, almost to bow in honor of the loss and of their life and the potential that was lost as a result of the Holocaust. And so these are the many, many ways that they honor and recognize their history, and honor, I should say, those who, who perished and suffered under it. In contrast, in this country, there are many, many, many Confederate monuments, not just in the South, but oddly enough, in other parts of the country. And you would wonder, well, why in the world would there be a monument uh, to the Confederacy in, say, Idaho or in, in California or New York? But that shows the extensive sense of connection to what ultimately was a caste system, a hierarchy that existed in the South and that, that had ramifications for the rest of the country. In addition, any symbol from the Nazi era could land a person with three years in prison, whereas there are Confederate symbols that have been incorporated into state flags in, in this country, not to mention the many, many monuments around the country, but especially in the South to the Confederacy. So as two different countries have dealt with and taught their history completely differently. Thus, the population sees the history differently, is not on the same page, not in agreement about what even happened. And thus, many people here would not even see the need for interrogating the existence of these monuments, to even know what they mean and how painful they are to many millions upon millions of people in this country. There's not even an awareness. And I would add one other thing is one story from this is a reminder of just how difficult it was for Mayor Mitch Landrieu of New Orleans to merely remove two of the statues to the Confederacy uh, just a few years ago yeah. that, that had to be done in secret, that the people, he couldn't even find anyone, and no contractor would agree to do it because it was just uh, so contentious. And then when they finally began the operation, they had to cover the names of the contractor. They had to have police presence there to protect the people who were working there. I mean, and, and there were drones overhead. I mean, it was quite the, the spectacle merely to remove one of the statues that the mayor a five-generation uh, Southerner said was no longer representative of what the state and what the city more particularly wished to see itself, that there was a need to move beyond that past to a more open-hearted, open-minded, humanitarian view of our country yeah. and, and of the history. It took a lot of courage for him to do that, a lot of courage lot of for him to stand up and do that. Yeah. yeah. Heather, thank you so much for that. Shanna, you had a question? Yeah. So it's a question and a comment. And so, um, first of all, Ms. Wilkerson, I've been a fan since the warmth of other suns and appreciate your work. 
um, and the depth of your research. Um, and so um, I want to circle back to the Albright story. And, and so what touched me so much about that story is that I have sons. I have a daughter and I have sons and I have nephews and and cousins and when I read that story I instantly thought of the sports celebrations that I've attended over the years and imagining if my sons or my nephews or my cousins if I saw them isolated like this and not being able to be appreciated I would, they would be appreciated for their talents and abilities on the field but not allowed to be celebrated in the same way as their peers. And so for me, um, when Mel brought up that they learned how to play the game, as I think about our world, the world in which we live in now, as a mother, when we're trying to educate our sons on the game, as parents, as we're trying to educate our kids on the games, those of us who have children in the sub subordinate cast, it's hard to teach them the rules of the game because oftentimes the rules change. Mm -hmm. So when the rules continue to shift, it makes it hard for us to prepare our children to face what we know will, will inevitably become a reality for them when they will be forced to be seen only as the, their hereditary features. I wanted to go on the other side of the fence with Al Bright and sit yeah. there and celebrate with him and let him know that he was appreciated. It's like what Melba was saying earlier. I mean, the thing that touched me about it and the reason why I wanted to immediately call and speak to him is because I would think that that would leave a traumatic impact in your brain you'd never get over. I mean, it's like what Melba, you know, so eloquently was talking about earlier, that no matter how many planes she's on, how many books she writes, how many doctorates, that what's been ingrained in your brain is that you're not good enough. I mean, I don't know how you ever feel like you are actually good enough if something like that happens to you. Desiree? Hi. Again, thank you all so much. Um, and to Ms. Wilkerson, oh my God, you have educated me. You've educated me so to the point that the majority of all this stuff I didn't know. And I'm from Alabama. I'm from Selma. And things that should have been taught to me were never taught to me. But my thing is, what I've come across, even in your book that brought so much enlightenment on, is that the system and how it has worked. But for your book, for someone to even recognize what has taken place and what is taking place even now, that their hearts have to be opened up to be able to receive the information. And what I mean by an example of that, you know, I'm an educator. And so I taught in this school system. I taught fifth grade at this time. And it was during Black History Month. So, you know, that's the only month they give us to be who we are. So what I did was I started teaching my children about Ruby Bridges. They didn't know about Ruby Bridges. And during that time, you know, things that they were saying. So what I tried to do was I tried to even go back just a little bit as far as telling them about the information that I did know about slavery. But do you know I got reprimanded for opening up to them what has been closed to so many people. Their hearts wasn't open. They went to my principal, said something to her, and I could no longer even teach that particular text any longer what happened to Ruby. And so my question is, one of the ladies, she was saying, you know, educating, but what, how, what you do when you get to a point where people's hearts are just not open up for it? 
There is a study out of the University of North Carolina that indicates that when children are exposed, I'm speaking about African-American children, children in, in, in a subordinated caste, are exposed to the ways that their family managed to survive. Not history with a big H, the people who are carved in granite, but the people who are, who are in their family, who the stories of survival, that that gives people strength, that gives children strength. And the stories, for example, as you said, of Ruby Bridges, the stories that every African-American parent should be telling their children, whether or not it's being taught in the schools. It should be taught in the schools, of course. I'm speaking about what are the things that individuals can do in the framework that we are existing in. This book and history such as this are ways to try to expose everybody, those who are willing with a willing heart and open mind, to be able to absorb the full story of our history. Can't make people, you know, you can't make people read it, but you can expose them as much as we can. And I'm so grateful for this platform to be able to do that and whatever anyone can do to share this history in their own way. I would say that to me what is most important is the idea that if you think about those who have come before us, I get so inspired by those who came before us. People who were living in the depths of Jim Crow where these things were legal and on the books. How is it that they survived and how is it that we can learn from the structure, the infrastructure that we've inherited, that we had nothing to do with building, but just to know that there's a structure there that we have to manage and navigate through, I think gives us tools to better manage it. It gives us a pathway toward understanding, knowing it's not personal, this is not about us as individuals, it's about what's been inherited through the generations and that it's up to each of us as individuals to find ways to transcend it and to push through. I mean, it's such an honor to be here with Mel and with Mel, but to be here on this very platform here with them, it's astonishing to be able to be here. It's my honor to be here. And I think that there's so much that can be learned by looking at how people have survived in the past. History. History. Yeah. Absolutely, history. absolutely. Yeah. Both walking history books for us all and an opportunity to, you know, have this wisdom passed on to us in, in this format. I treasure this. I also was thinking about your question, Sherry, and I, you know, I look at it as though in all those years of doing the Oprah show, thousands and thousands of families would come on and we would peel back the layers of what was going on in their families. And no healing ever occurs. Think about this in your own family. If somebody has betrayed you, has done something, has offended you. No healing ever occurs until there is an acknowledgement of what has happened. You've got to out that. You've got to talk about that. You've got to have that acknowledged in a way that you both can see what happened in order for any progress to occur. And the same thing I see with our family of this country, with all of us, that until you're willing to actually just to look at it, like you were just saying. You're not even saying, we're trying to start a revolution. We're just trying to get you to, to see it, just to see it. And I think having your hearts open to see it. Yeah, Walter. I have one comment about the, the story of the baseball player that resonated with me, being an athlete and being on a team. And one thing about being on a team, and Mel, thank you for uh, being a trailblazer, not only as an athlete, but also as an intellectual. And I want to say that there was a, a time once in college when uh, we're on the field and one of my teammates and I was a lineman and we're in the middle of a game and a opposing player on the defensive side of the ball said to me, hey, get your boy. He just called me the N-word. 
And so I look at myself, I look over to my teammate and I'm thinking like, did you really just say this to him? Or did you really call him that? And my, the point I'm trying to make is it's not on me because I'm a part of, if you're looking at heritability, I'm a part of the subordinate cast. It's on the people who are in the dominant cast to do something. So it's not the black teammate of the white teammate who needs to say something to the white teammate about the comments that he makes. It's on the people of the dominant class to do something about the other people in the dominant class. Whether you have these unconscious biases or not, you need to have that uncomfortable conversation. Martin Luther King spoke of three evils, the evil of race, the evil of poverty, and the evil of war. Poverty came because of the dominant class taking advantage of having free labor for all of slavery to be able to then pass down to their heirs wealth. So if you don't have anything to pass down, you don't inherit anything. So if you pass down everything and you got want it. something to change, then you got to do something to change it in the dominant class. Cast, cast. Thank you so much, Walter. Casey, and then Ben, and then we're going to go. Thank you, Casey. Um, I, I completely agree. And Oprah, maybe I am trying to start a revolution um, after reading this book. But Mel um, spoke specifically about fear, and I think us in the dominant cast, that's completely how we operate. We're afraid if we are going to lift other up, what are we going to lose? And that's just how, how we operate. So I think just in listening, I mean, there's hundreds of years of trauma to unpack. I'm an educator. I proposed to my school a, a COVID year, which based in this global pandemic that's happening right now that is largely affecting the black and brown communities. I propose that we take a year and call it what it is, a childcare crisis, and we pause or we lock in step with the underfunded local public school and we don't continue to perpetuate the gap that is so large. It is such a broken system. And what do you keep hearing about? School, people need to be taught this. People need to be exposed to this. Good for you, good for you. Ben. Yeah, I have a question for Isabel. I can speak as someone who, from this dominant cast whose heart used to be closed and has been opened, that one of the challenges and one of the barriers I used to put up was looking at racism um, through the lens of comparing Jim Crow racism to today and saying, oh, well, Jim Crow racism doesn't exist anymore, so therefore racism doesn't exist anymore. And then I have my eyes open to see that racism doesn't go away, it, ev it evolves, it changes to match the context. And so I guess my question is, how would you possibly explain how does caste evolve to fit the context because I think a lot of people with a closed heart are going to read the Al Bright story and say that's 1951 and that law doesn't exist anymore and so it's not a problem. So how do you say okay that form of caste purity doesn't exist but it has evolved into our current context. How do you have that conversation and explain the evolution of these pillars of caste? Well, that's a great question. One of the things about it is that it's very hard for humans, I think, to recognize necessarily injustice while it's occurring. We often look back and we can say, oh, this was terrible what happened to Emmett Till, and of course it was absolutely horrendous. But we might not see the modern day iteration of that. 
when you look at, say, a Tamir Rice, who was shot within seconds upon arrival of the police officers. He was the same age. He was actually younger than Emmett Till. That's a modern-day iteration. It doesn't look exactly the same, and it's harder for us to recognize that. At the time that Emmett Till was killed, there were people who did not think that that was wrong. There were people who felt that that was perfectly, of course, that's the way the Jim Crow system works. He should have known better. He should not have done that. This is what happens when you step out of your place, when you step out of your caste. It's harder to recognize something when it's actually in front of us anyway. And then I would also say that when you think about what is going on now, say the Al Bright situation, what, what he endured, it's important to note that there was no law. That wasn't a law. That was a custom that was being used or enforced in that situation. In the North, there were not the laws, as Mel mentioned so, so brilliantly. There were, there were, it was different from in the South. There were no laws. This was custom that was being practiced in the North that meant that anywhere you could go, you could run up against some of these restrictions and not even see it coming. And then when you think about what is the modern day iteration of that, because it's not gonna look the same, that's the biggest problem to, the, the, to speak to your point, why it's such a great question. It doesn't look the same because it mutates with the times, like a virus. Ooh, Viruses are dangerous because they don't stay the same and you're not looking for the exact same manifestation. And so then I would point to say what happened in McKinney, Texas in 2015. This is within the lifespan of everybody here. And in McKinney, Texas, there was a pool party, a pool that, where uh, some black children went to this pool and that someone called the police on them. And when the police arrived, one of the officers actually tackled a very small-boned 14-year-old girl. Yeah, we saw that. Put his knee on her back, pulled at her hair, had her, I mean, it just, it's, it's a wrenching viral video that, that's just very, very difficult to watch. And then the young people who were around her friends instantly responded as human beings would by saying, wait, you should, you can't do that to her, you're hurting her. You got this big, you know, a, a grown man on this girl's back and the children responded accordingly, and then he waved his gun at them, and then they recoiled from that. It became a modern-day iteration of the same impulse toward maintaining purity of, of one group and by pollution of another. It doesn't look the same, and that's why it's harder to identify for some people. Okay, so it doesn't look the same, and it's interesting you're using Tamir Rice and Emmett Till, because Tamir Rice, within seconds, the officer pulls up, and because he is playing with a water gun, he is shot. We have seen these happen over and over and over and over and over again. We saw the video you just described. We've seen, you know, Eric Garner down. We now have the video so we can actually see it. We see, you know, Walter Scott shot in the back. So what was it about the George Floyd video, do you think, that made it so different? Was it because we were in COVID? I think they shook the world because people who don't have to live with this as a constant fear every day saw this happen before their very eyes. And it went on for a very long time. You could see everything happening Eight to minutes, him 46 seconds. Before our very eyes. Yeah, we could mm -hmm. see the whole thing. And there was no escaping the horror of that moment. And everyone around the world saw it. And we were, as I was saying, on the same page about what happened. And you couldn't say, well, he shouldn't have been selling cigarettes, or he shouldn't have been holding a water pistol, or he shouldn't have ran, or he shouldn't have done. Yeah. For eight minutes and 46 seconds, yeah. we saw it. Yeah. And there was nowhere else to look. Yes. Nowhere else to look. Yeah. <sighs> it shouldn't take that. Still more to come. It should not take that. It shouldn't take that. It shouldn't take that. Thank you, Mel. Thank you so much for sharing with us about Albright. Thank you, Melba. Thank you.
walking history lesson there. Thank you, Isabel. Next time we'll be discussing pillar five, occupational hierarchy, something really relevant to our world today. Whether you want to read or listen to the audiobook, get your copy on Apple Books. It's easy. The Apple Books app is already on your phone and your iPad. And then join us on Instagram and Facebook at Oprah's Book Club to discuss and connect with other readers. And in October, make sure to head to Apple TV Plus to watch my interview with Isabel about why she was inspired to embark on the journey to write cast. Bye, everybody. Till next time.